What's up, Disciple Makers? You're listening to the Disciple Makers podcast brought to you by discipleship.org. I'm your host, Dave Stovall, and we have got a heck of an episode in store for you today. You're going to be listening to Josh Howard. He's a leader within a disciple-making movement in India. Josh's story is incredibly compelling because he made the shift from a traditional church model to one that truly embraces decentralized movements of the gospel through disciple-making. Paul Hugobart and Josh engage in an honest conversation about the North American church and the barrier that we create here by centralized thinking. This was an incredible episode. Let's dive in and hear from Paul and Josh from Renew.org. Enjoy the episode, everybody. I want to welcome you on behalf of Renew. Um, Renew, Renew, we care about renewing the teachings of Jesus as a, you know, so that we can fuel disciple making. And so really we want to get re-engaged with scripture as, uh, as we've been talking about and the emphasis on the word even at the, the conference here at D.org this year. That's really what's at the heart of Renew is how can we get to scripture, understanding that you know, in disciple making movement, scripture is the curriculum. Uh, nothing happens without the word of God fueling uh, the movement. And so uh, we want to be about that ourselves as well, and so um, uh, thanks for being here on behalf of Renew. Um, my name is Paul Hugobart. This is Josh Howard. In just a second, I'm going to let Josh uh, introduce himself to you. Uh, I'll tell you just a little bit about myself. I've been engaged um, <clears throat> through Renew for the last year, leading a project of roughly 25 North American churches uh, between the sizes of about 500 and about 15,000 coming together. Um, trying to bring movement principles into our weekly, daily practice. I mean, that is, that is what we're looking to do. And so we've identified engaging with these disciple-making movement leaders, uh, eight principles, and there's an article on the D.org website that you can find. You could also go to Renew.org's website and look at contributors, find my name. You can find the, uh, the eight principles. Um, <clears throat> the article, it's called a principled approach. And that is what we're arguing for, really, um, in, that, in that practice is that we bring principles in before practice, uh, that we understand the why before we try to do the what. We've seen a lot of stops and starts and even some failures and disappointments and discouragements in the North American church when we just try to do what's happening in other places. And so we believe that if we start with principles and, and get the principles before the practice, the, the shaping of our hearts uh, will happen before the shaping of our actions happens. And that's, that's what we need to have uh, and that's what we need to see. So Josh is going to help us think through one of those principles. It's the eighth principle, if you're interested as, as you're looking through the article. And I will tell you that we word that principle a little bit differently now because of interactions with Josh. We realized as we were talking, what we thought we'd heard from some of these movement leaders was not exactly what they were saying. And that's happened several times along the way is we distilled what we thought we were hearing as it relates to multiplication. Uh, but we're going to talk a little bit. You've seen probably the title uh, of, uh, of the conversation that we'll have. And it's really a move from centralization and control to decentralization and why that is essential in, as it relates to movement practice. But before we do that, Josh, um, I'd love for you to, I don't want to assume that everybody knows you, knows your story. Uh, even if they know who you are, they may not know some of the things that have happened that led you to become somebody that is embracing truly multiplicative practices as it relates to disciple making. So yeah. if you'd share maybe even a little bit of the beginning, kind of give us a basic look as to you know, okay. how we got where we are today. Yeah, yeah, and I'll be sharing quite a bit of our story uh, in the, main, the, the last main session today. Um, and so you'll hear some of this again, so you can get in on the ground floor and, 
and here at first. Uh, but um, so I moved to India 15 years ago, um, and had no idea what in the world I was doing. Okay, um, I had <laughs> preached a lot of messages, um, done a done a lot of ministry, had never really made a disciple in my life ever. And here I was in the middle of India, never really doing before what Jesus had actually asked me to do in the middle of one of the most unreached nations in the world with 1.3 billion people who desperately needed Jesus. And so what ended up happening, guys, in those early stages, rather than me being the big bad missionary that came and saved everybody, the Indian believers taught me how to follow Jesus. That's, that's what actually happened. And so I met men and women that were willing to risk anything and everything for the sake of the gospel. I met young men at 17, 18 years old who said yes to follow Jesus, even though they knew that by saying yes, they were going to get kicked out of their families, kicked out of their villages, and never allowed to return. And they, and they said yes anyway. I mean, that's the kind of lay it all down, sell everything you have, and buy the field kind of people. And I'd never seen love or faithfulness like that. I'd never seen boldness, boldness like that. And, and what, it, what I began to realize is it made my love for Jesus look a whole lot more like liking Jesus rather than loving him. And so for the first few years, even though I continued to do ministry, you can say, what else are you going to do? Uh, I, I kept doing ministry, but I was learning a lot from the Indian believers of, of what it looks like to be a disciple. And you'll hear this later on today, but one of the principles that I came away with in that season of life was that I was not a disciple worth reproducing. And if we're going to reproduce disciples, what are we actually multiplying? And that's a huge, difficult question. And so I begin to ask the question, if everybody prayed like me, if everybody fasted the way that I fast, if everybody shared the gospel the, as often as I share the gospel, if, I made, if everybody made disciples the way that I was making them, would that be a good thing or not? Mm. And I, don't, I still don't know if it's a good thing. I don't know that my wife would want 100 Josh Howards running around. So I, I, think, I think it's probably not a great thing, but at that season of life, it was really bad news if I was going to be reproducing myself and other disciples. It was, it was not good news at all. Uh, I could not have said at that stage of life, follow me as I follow Christ. It was, it was not going to work that way. And so we began to make major shifts uh, towards a more multiplicative disciple-making process. Um, and how we began that journey, really for us, th this was for us. There's a lot of pathways here, guys. There's a lot of, there's a lot of <laughs> Morpheus and Neo moments that are going to happen in your life where somebody holds out a couple pills and says, if you take this one, your life's never going to be the same. And for me, that pathway, that, that, that blue pill, red pill moment for me, um, I, I was sitting with, with my staff at the time. We were dreaming of what it would look like to impact the entire nation of India and all the surrounding nations with the gospel. Big dreams, right? Prideful, young, arrogant leaders who thought we could impact the entire nation of India in our generation. And we still believe that. We're dumb enough to think that. No, I'm just kidding. Because we've got a big God who, who deeply longs to shake nations. Amen? Um, and so anyway, we're dreaming, and we're throwing out numbers, man. Like, what would it take to reach this nation? And I don't remember if it was me or one of my guys. I was the only white guy there. It's all Indian-led, you know? Um, and so, uh, you know, some of you know Ajay Lal. He's, he's an incredible Indian missionary. He's my father-in-law. Uh, I live literally right across the street from him. 
Um, so I married his daughter, uh, and they run Central India Christian Mission, which if you're looking for an Indian organization, incredible group. Um, so I'm sitting with a bunch of Indian leaders, and I rem- one guy says, what if we could reach 100,000 people a year with the gospel? Wouldn't that be amazing? And I'm like, heck yeah, it would be amazing. And one of the guys was like, yeah, they'd write books about us. You know, it'd be great, as if that's the dream. But hey, that's what he said. Um, and uh, so I pull out my calculator in that meeting, and I plug 100,000 into 1.3 billion and realize that if we do traditional ministry like we had been doing, it would take us 13,000 years to reach India. Man, there are, there are over 40,000 people a day dying without Jesus, okay? Like 13,000 years, guys. Like Jesus came 2,000 years ago. We're still, we're still barely scratching the surface at completing the Great Commission. And so I knew then and there, even if we added a zero to it, right, which missionaries love to do, <laughs> maybe not just missionaries, maybe pastors too, I don't know, but we love to add zeros to stuff, so we're like, well, what if it was a million a year? It's still 1,300 years, okay? And that's adding disciples, right? So we said, well, that's not going to work. Traditional ministry of just adding churches to the spiritual landscape of India, adding believers to that landscape who are not also making disciples themselves was never going to get this job done. And what the Lord told me that during that season was this, Josh, every, what you don't understand is that every generation is a new great commission. The people living here, the seven something billion people, almost eight billion people in the world right now, or nine, or I don't know how many there are now. There's a lot of billions, okay, who are living in the world right now. We're not here 150 years ago, none of them. And the people that are going to be here 150 years from now are a whole different nine or 10 billion people, right? And so good grief, guys. Like we've got to, if we're going to see the Great Commission completed, it's got to be done in our lifetime, in this generation, so that every person in every place has an opportunity to hear the gospel. Because our Lord, as it says in Peter, is being patient with us so that all may come to repentance. And so we begin to dream differently. We begin to pray differently. And our team begin to get on our knees and we begin to fast and pray, God, what would it take to impact this nation with the gospel? And it was about that time I stumbled across this little book called T4T by Ying Kai. If you've never heard of Ying, he was trained by Curtis Sargent, who has been around this conference. He just got that award last session. Ying and his wife, Grace, moved to South China. And in 10 years, I'll give you the super short version of this so we can get to some of these questions. But um, in 10 years, they saw a million people baptized and 200,000 churches started in 10 years. And they were multiplying at that point like crazy. So the million were not just a million believers. They were a million disciple makers that were multiplying. And I'm like, man, you get a million people like that, you're going like, to see some impact. And so I still remember, this was like 12 years ago for me right now. I, I, I couldn't continue in the book. I, I shut the book and I muttered out this prayer to the Lord. I said, God, if you can do it in China, I know you can do it here. Mm-hmm. And so, man, a few of us with T4T in one hand and the Bible in the other, we began to try to give it a go and see what would happen. I'd never heard of DMM, CPM, MPM, whatever, I, all the other DMs. I'd never heard any of those. I didn't know what movement was. I didn't know any of that stuff, right? And so we were just giving it a go, right? We were trying to get it started. And at the beginning, man, it sucked. Like, I mean, nobody was doing anything. I remember the first, you guys are going to, I'm sorry, you're, you're actually hearing my entire talk. I, I, so if you don't want to come to the last session, you can head out early, okay? Um, I will hit on more stuff, but, okay, um, man, like, 
I remember the when, I, when we launched this thing, okay? It was a Sunday morning. I'm preaching at our local church, which was planted 150 years ago by missionaries. About 1,200 people were there, okay? A lot of people. It had been around a long time. And, man, if I do say so myself, it was the best message I've ever given in my life, okay? All right? Pat myself on the back. It, man, I gave everything, man. I had the calculator up there. I was talking about we can never reach this nation doing what we're doing. I was sharing Yin Kai's story. I was sharing every story I could, you know, you can imagine. I was laying it out there. I was expecting Pentecost Sunday, man. Like, there were 1,200 people there. I knew 3,000 were going to come forward. There were going to be old Indian women off the streets coming to say, I'm in, man. Let's shake the nation, you know. They've never even heard of Jesus, but they're in. And, man, I gave an altar call, and it wasn't even a high-bar altar call, guys. I'm going to confess that. You've done it. Don't judge me. Okay, it was, it was one of those you just wanted everybody to respond, you know. So it was kind of like if you kind of want to maybe make disciples, come on up, and we'll show you how to do it, right? You know, just you, you want your ego boosted a little bit. You want a lot of people to come forward, you know, church camp, whatever. And so, man, I give this altar call. I'm expecting the whole room to get up. Twelve people came forward. I was ticked, man. Like, you people not even Christians? Like, what's wrong with you, right? I had a guy sitting next to me. He could tell I was angry. He nudged me. He said, Josh, I know another guy who started with 12 people, and he did okay. Yeah. <laughs> I still don't know who he was talking about, you know? Um, Ying Kai. Yeah, right. It was Ying Kai. It was Ying. It was Ying. Um, so, so we start with these 12 guys. Jesus had one Judas. I had 11, okay? I had... <laughs> I had 11 guys who didn't do anything, man. They, like, they would set these big goals. I'm going to share the gospel with five people. I'm going to do 10, whatever. Nothing. Every week. And then we had this one guy, uneducated village guy. Couldn't even read or write, man. I honestly kind of ignored him. I, di I didn't expect much out of him. I didn't even want him in the group. I I'm being just super transparent here, guys. I'm, you know, this is the, this is the heart of a, of a prideful, arrogant leader, okay? Like, that's, that's what it was. I didn't think he could do anything. So I wasn't paying attention. And in the first two weeks, this uneducated village guy, man, he goes out and plants eight churches in surrounding villages, reached eight villages with the gospel in the first two weeks, okay? And I'm so thankful for this guy, man. I'm going to change his name for security, but let's call him Mahesh, okay? Man, if it weren't for Mahesh, I would have given up and quit, okay? I, because I owe for 12, good grief, that's not good numbers, you know? <laughs> At least Jesus had 11 stick around, you know? Like, I was 0 for 12, okay, Jesus, I'm going to do something else, right? This guy sold it for me, and I had to repent. I got on my knees and said, Jesus, like, I'm sorry. I didn't expect anything out of this guy. And that's when the Lord sa said to me, Josh, I love to do extraordinary things through ordinary people. Mm -hmm. And so we got started with this one guy. I'll, I'll speed up the story. We, we start training everything that would move, bro. Like if you were a dog and could bark, we, we teach you how to say Jesus. You know, like anybody and everybody, man, just training everybody. Long story short, it started super slow. One disciple making two, two to four, four to eight. Super slow. You got to go slow to go fast, man. And guys, 10 years in now, we're about 10 years in after the launch of all of this. We have now seen somewhere in the ballpark of 18 to 20,000 churches started in the last 10 years. 8,000 of those were last year in 2022. When you start to see the exponential impact, like I still can't believe these numbers, guys. And it's super easy. And I'm going to say this later today, okay? It is super easy for one man to stand up in front of you in, in, a, in a North American church mm -hmm. and take credit for what God has done in a nation like India. Guys, listen, there are thousands of ordinary, everyday people that you will never know their name that are risking, <laughs> risking their lives every day to share the gospel in this nation. I have done nothing except equip and empower and release and step out of the way so that these everyday, ordinary people can go do what God has called them to do. 
And so please do not hear some white guy saying, look at what I did stepping into India and planting all of these churches. I didn't plant any of those churches. All of them were ordinary, everyday people, farmers and lawyers and doctors and nurses, and some of them pastors. Can you believe that? Pastors, planting churches. Um, I mean, they, they, they are, all of them are doing amazing, amazing work. We saw, over, I don't know, 56,000 people give their lives to Jesus last year. And it's not through some big crusade. It's not some, through big evangelistic pushes. It's through one person going to their friends and family and telling them about Jesus and then making disciples. And so that's our story, guys. Again, you're going to have to hear this again. So um, if you miss something, <laughs> you, can, you can come back later, hear, hear round two, see if I share it differently. But anyway, I'm sorry, Paul. I didn't know if you no, wanted me to go into all fantastic. that. Yeah. Yeah, it yeah. sounds just like what's happening here, right? No, not really. Not really. No, actually, that's we're going to talk about the contrast between what is happening here in North American Christianity as it relates to trying to reach people with the gospel and what's happening in India. Um, As you talk, Josh, especially as we're going to focus on this idea of decentralization, um, give us some concrete examples, really, that show uh, the way that you guys are embracing, have embraced by necessity, have embraced decentralization within the movement of India in India so that you can see multiplication. You, you said, and we've talked recently, that, that really control, and we'll talk more about control as it relates to centralization, but control is an enemy of movement. So you yeah. all have been intentional in decentralizing things yeah. as opposed to maintaining centralized control. Yeah, yeah. So guys, listen, hear me closely here. I heard a guy say this once. It's not original to me. Probably none of this is. I mean, Jesus has it all. But uh, I heard a guy say once, you can have control or you can have movement, you cannot have both, okay? You can have control and keep everything super tight and neat, keep everything tidy, everything is looking good, all structure, right? Or you can have a movement of God, and a movement of God is messy, it's difficult, it's not easy, okay? It is simple, but it's not easy. Don't, com- don't confuse those two, okay? It's simple, it's not easy, okay? It will be messy, but it's going to have to be decentralized, empowering the priesthood of all believers, releasing, equipping, empowering, sending them out to the edges, sending them out into the harvest, and releasing all authority and control so that the Holy Spirit can do what he does. Okay? And so for us, we had, to, we, had to, we had to make that decision real early. Okay? We're not going to brand that. So, for example, we call our movement Ignite. Okay, like we're igniting, we're igniting multiplication, we're igniting the gospel, we're igniting disciples, you know, lighting a fire that spreads, right? Wildfire. Here's the deal though. Two or three generations down the line, no one's heard of Ignite. They don't know my name. They've never even seen me or met me. Like they don't they don't know what they're a part of, like when it comes to a brand or a name. It's not like every one of them have the Ignite brand up on their house, you know, like this is a house church from Ignite. Like none of that. Okay? Like you know, uh, even though I tried that, um, it's <laughs> no, I didn't. Um, but but th- the point is, is that we have we do have we do have things that are centralized and and but not controlled. So it's it's very easy in the North American church to make those two things synonyms. Mm. Like control and centralization are the same thing. No, they're not. They're they're actually they don't have to be. They can be. They don't have to be. So for us, we do have something centralized. Like we coach, we mentor, we we empower. Our role centrally is actually to serve all the movement leaders and multipliers possible. So we're equipping them, we're coaching them, we're mentoring them, we're guiding them, we're having meetings with them. Any resources that they may need and that's not just money, right? Anything they may need, we're wanting to empower, release, take it. You know, we're giving the kingdom away. Man, this is you. The Holy Spirit is in you. The, mm-hmm. 
The same spirit that rose Jesus from the dead, man, is in every single one of our people. Like, we've got to release them and let them go and give them permission to go shake the nations and the cities in which they live. And so that cannot be done with centralized control, okay? And so what decentralization looks like for us, I mean, we're releasing all authority and power to the local church level. So every time a church is planted, right, they're doing baptism locally, they're taking communion locally, okay, you don't have to be some ordained leader in order to do this stuff, right? The spirit is in them, right? The priesthood of all believers is something that we hold super, super dear. You don't have to be, there's not a difference between professionals and laity. They can all do it, right? And so we're, we're releasing power, releasing authority. We're doing peer-to-peer mentoring and coaching all the way down the movement. So house church leaders have guys and gals that they can meet with, they can talk with, they can strategize with, they can pray with, they can ask tough questions together with, right? So we've got a cascading form of leadership development that's not top-down. It's just cascading all the way down the movement, right? And they're all meeting together, talking with one another, honoring one another, asking tough questions, all those things. And so we've, we've just, man, it's been completely open-handed. Okay, go get them. Share the gospel. Make disciples. Plant churches. Go get it done. We'll help you, right? We'll coach you. We'll mentor you. We're here in any way you need. Okay? And that's what our central team looks like. It's really about, honestly, so many people say when you're at the top of a movement, it's like we have that hierarchy structure, right? The truth is you're really at the bottom of the movement. You're, you're, you're serving, you're washing feet, you're empowering, you're equipping, you're releasing, right? You're at the bottom. You're, 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 you're lifting as many people up as you can and, and launching them further faster than you could ever go. And so that's the power of decentralization. There's, yeah. and, and the cool thing is with that, Paul, which we were talking about the other day. So back in November, December, man, our whole family had to go underground for like six weeks. Police were coming after my father-in-law. We, we, we weren't around at all. I was checked out. I couldn't communicate on the phone anymore. People had tapped our phones. I mean, it, it was crazy security issues. And, dude, our movement didn't skip a beat, bro. Like, I, they don't need me. <laughs> like, you know, they don't need me at all. Like, they're multiplying like crazy. That's the power of a decentralized starfish kind of movement that if you cut off one arm, bro, another one grows back. You get one leader. Even if he's the leader who started or whatever, right? It doesn't matter. Like, everybody's out there doing it. You don't need some centralized figure of authority to keep the movement going, right? I mean, we have some churches, dude, if the, if the leader didn't show up for a week, bro, everything would fall apart. And it's like, man, we, we've got to have a move of God that's continuing without dependence on centralized leadership. Mm-hmm. So, so let's think about North America real quick. And maybe let's... Um Let's name not specific places, but let's name uh, the types of environments is what I mean. Uh, the types of environments Don't name where, pastors by name, okay? Right, right, right. Yeah. That's, uh, that's something you guys can do in your conversations later, but, uh, but we're not going to do this here partially because we're being recorded on a podcast and it's just not nice. But, uh, but what are some examples of high control environments or practices that exist within the North American church that maybe don't exist in movement in India, or maybe don't look the same. So again, we often have blind spots, and that's why I want to ask Josh a question like this. He's familiar with the North American church as a whole, but also has seen movement in India. So what what are some examples of some of those high control environments and practices that typically exist in the North American church? Yeah, that's good. Let me, let me take a moment here, guys. Um, I'm going to say a quick prayer. Lord, this is your bride. She's beautiful and amazing. And I want you to give us wisdom as we talk, 
Yes. As a good bridesmaid would, mm. that if makeup is smudged or the dress is a little off, that like a good bridesmaid, we would reach around and fix it and let the bride know that there's something off before she walks down the aisle. Mm. And so in, in a spirit of love and encouragement, as I said, Father, like a good yes. bridesmaid, we pray that that's the heart we would have as we begin to talk about maybe some smudges and makeup or some mm. food on the face that we might have. Um, and uh, we pray for your grace and your mercy and that we would always speak of your bride with honor and respect. And uh, even as we're pointing out difficulties that we may need to change, um, we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh, thank you for that, Josh. Um, yeah, I, I, and the only reason I did that, guys, is I, sometimes it's easy when you've been out of the United States for 15 years to only see things you would like mm. to change or, or struggles rather than the millions of positive things that the bride is doing across the world. Amen. Um, and so, but yeah, I mean, I heard, a, I had a buddy say once, <laughs> the body of Christ, right? The head's a 10, but the body sometimes is a one. <laughs> mm. <laughs> <Okay>. um, <laughs> he's sitting in this room, actually. I won't name him, though. But, um, anyway, uh, what are his initials? <laughs> Anyway, so uh, I see him there. <laughs> you see him there. Anyway, uh, so so anyway, here, here's the deal, guys. With with high control environments, okay. I think the question, which is actually a question that we had in the discussion the other night, yep. which was a beautiful question. Yep. This is the question somebody posed when we were talking about this question. What deep inner insecurity yeah. do I need to lay on the altar that is causing me to think I need so much control? What inner insecurity do I have as a leader that makes me think I need to control everything I'm trying to touch or everything I'm trying to influence, right? And that's a really mm -hmm. deep question that we need to ask, right? And so I think sometimes we build environments unintentionally, okay? I don't think this is even intentionally. I think if you ask any leader in the country who may be in a high control environment or who has created that culture, Nine times out of ten, it's going to be with pure, holy, good intentions mm -hmm. that they long to have high quality. They long to have great programs. Mm -hmm. They long to honor God with what they do. They want excellence. But in the striving sometimes for excellence and quality, we end up sacrificing the mess and the ordinary everyday people who you could release, who could actually fail forward and get a lot of stuff done. Okay. The difference between movement and traditional ministry is this. Traditional ministry are a few people doing all the work. Movement is a lot of people doing a little bit of the work all at the same time. Okay? That's really one big difference. All right? And sometimes we create high control environments because we long to see, uh, there, there's, there's good intentions and bad intentions there. Some of us, if we were super honest and looked in the mirror, we'd say because we want credit for the ministry we're doing. And if I'm not in control of it, I can't take credit for all of it, okay? And so we want credit. Now, we'll never say that loud. You'll never see a speaker on a stage saying, I just want credit for everything I'm doing. That's why I'm so controlling, okay? No, nobody's going to say that. But, but they will, they will if, they, if they're honest with themselves. Sometimes that's an issue. Another issue is, like I just mentioned, they do desire quality. They do desire excellence. But they've created such an environment that everybody feels like they need permission from 27 people before they even lift a finger to do anything around the church. 
And so we look at ordinary people and we're like, you know what? You'd be really good at handing out bulletins at the front. You'd be really good at passing the communion tray. And we, the high bar service is mm -hmm. like, is like passing out bulletins and greeting people at the front. <laughs> you know, it's like, like, man, we got to expect more out of our people and not mm. be so tight and controlling and say, you know what? It may be messy at first, but the goal is not to make somebody perfect. The goal is actually to just bring them up to shoulder height, you know, like they don't have to be perfect. Curtis Sargent says all the time about duckling discipleship, right? He says, if you want to disciple people, right? You've got a mama duck. Think about that mama duck and all these little ducklings that are following the mama, right? The truth is really only the first one or two ducklings are actually following the mama. Every other little duck behind it or just following the duckling in front, right? So to disciple people, you don't have to be mama duck. You just need to be a little duck one or two steps ahead of the one behind you. That's it. Really, that's it. You can help them take the next step, right? You don't have to be mama. You just got to be a baby that's a couple steps ahead. That's all. And so we need to raise our expectations of what our ordinary everyday people can do. And that will help break that control environment when we begin to kind of release grip, release control, give permission, or as my friend Dave Ferguson says, lead with a yes, right? Make yes your first response and, mm -hmm. and, and then empower and equip and release people in those situations. Yeah, yeah, yeah it, it almost sounds like, if I could just put a quick couple word summary on it, we've, yeah. we have traded priesthood for involvement of some sort. Mm -hmm. You know, so we're, we're involved, we're engaged. What does involvement look like? It, you know, being agreed at the door, and there's, I mean, being agreed at the door can be an incredibly important thing at times. I mean, there's no doubt, but it pales in comparison to actually being part of the priesthood of believers right. in that regard. Yeah. Um, as we go, uh, I want to acknowledge, so I've got a set of questions for Josh that, that I want to work through. Um, sometimes we set aside time at the end of a conversation. Uh, I think it may be easier at times if you have a question in the moment if you've got a question, I'd love for you just to raise your hand and you can ask that question of Josh. We want for this to be an open conversation, not just a dialogue between the two of us, yeah. uh, but an open conversation with you as a participant as well. So looks like we've we've already got a <laughs> yeah. few. So hey, before you ask great. that question, yeah. let me add, let yes. me finish this thought about this priesthood idea, right? right. Rather than in, like rather than the priesthood, we have involvement. Here's one big issue that that we've seen all over the world in traditional churches and and and, and the way that they're doing things is that we, we, again, this is never something we say out loud, but we assume in our mind that Sunday is game day, mm. meaning the game we're playing is done in the building on Sunday morning, and so the professionals are playing up on the stage and everybody is spectating and watching. That's where the game is played. The truth is, what we've been trying to cast vision for is that Sunday morning gatherings, that's not the game, man. That's the locker room. That should be like a halftime talk that the coach has given to the players before they go out on the field, right? Because these guys and gals are going out into the harvest, into the world, and, and they need to be prepared and equipped to go out onto the field. And so as leaders, we need to be more coach than we are hero, right? Or, or all-star, right? We don't need to be the Michael Jordans and LeBron James. We need to be the coaches on the sidelines or, you know, or even player coaches. You know, there, there's soccer teams all over the world that actually have player coaches. Like they're on the field with their team, but they're also, they're also coaching as they're going, right? So maybe we're player coaches. We're on the field with them. 
but we're not we're not the we're not the all star that's getting all the glory on the attention. We need to be the coaches that are having halftime talks, equipping our people, inspiring them so that they're out in the harvest going after it. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? So that's a very big distinction between the priesthood and just like, you know, serving on a Sunday morning. They're serving on a Sunday morning because we think that's game time. So we're bringing them into game time. That's not game time, man. Game time happens on Monday morning or even Sunday afternoon, mm-hmm. right? Anyway, sorry. Go ahead, brother. Oh, no, thank yeah. You. Yeah. Um, we've been thinking a lot about some of the shortcomings of the traditional or, or popular models uh, of church in the past. Um, are there any blind spots or failures or, or things to be aware of in kind of a decentralized movement that we should be wary of or, or, or on guard for? None. It's perfect. <laughs> <laughs> Did you hear that on the podcast? It's perfect. Close it now. Don't listen to the next statement. Okay. Um, anyway, no, of course there are, man. There every every model of ministry, because it's led by broken humans, okay, are gonna have downfalls and pitfalls, right? All of them will. So, for example, decentralization, we constantly, okay, which Paul did too, you're gonna get messes down the line, right? I mean, look at Corinth. My goodness, bro. Seriously. I mean, you got you got young men sleeping with their dad's wives and all sorts of crazy, messy, broken things, like nuts. But it was a church, man. He didn't say you're no longer a church. It was a church. It was just an unhealthy church, right? And so the, the, the positive thing that we like to do in India, right? I'm not, I'm not really big on it. This is just me personally, guys. I'm not really big on like trying to give strict definitions of what a church is, like it's got to be this and this number of people and all that. I'm a lot more concerned about healthy. Is it healthy? Okay, Because really the biblical definition of church, honestly, is just a gathering of disciples. That's all it was. The word literally means gathering, ecclesia. That's all it was. It was a gathering of disciples, followers of Jesus. Right. So um, now there are some components in the Bible that shows what they did when they gathered, and so we go after those things. But that shows more health than it does definition. Right. And so I'm way more concerned about health. And so we took a we took a page out of Neil Cole's playbook, man. Uh, He wrote a book called Organic Church a long time ago. And he said what we did is we lowered the bar of what it means to be church and we raised the bar of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Okay, because if you get great disciples of Jesus, you're going to get healthy churches. You get bad disciples, man, you're going to have bad churches because a church is a gathering of disciples. So your church's quality and health will be directly dependent upon the quality and health of your disciples. Okay. So sometimes in a rapid mobilization movement, mm-hmm. it's very easy sometimes to move on so quickly and not continue to make disciples that are growing and maturing and helping. And so that's why we've tried to put scaffolding around our movement Mm -hmm. where we're mentoring, we're coaching, we're guiding, we're asking tough questions. We're not just releasing and saying, see you later, go plant hundreds of churches, we'll never meet again. There's got to be some scaffolding around it. And so sometimes if we don't understand the principles behind uh, breadth and depth, Sometimes we're just after the breath. We want to spread it as quick as we can. And what we've noticed is when that happens, it fizzles out pretty quickly because you get a bunch of unhealth, right? But if you're doing both, you're expanding the gospel rapidly because people are dying every day. It's urgent. We have an urgent call, guys, right? We can't be sitting around. It's an urgent call, but the call is to make disciples who are looking more and more like Jesus every day of their lives, right? So we want them to be mature. And so some of the downfalls are if we're only after after rapid growth, well, then you could get weak disciples that aren't growing well. If you're only after after depth, 
sometimes you don't get people actually going out and sharing the gospel. So it's got to be a both and. We're deepening and broadening quickly, right? But that is a huge downfall sometimes, right? Another one is, which sometimes it can lead to um, a, a overemphasis on, uh, well, let, let me be careful how I say this. Let me, let me be careful how I say this. It can lead to sometimes, uh, I don't even want to say overemphasis because that's not the word I'm trying to say here, but you'll get, what I'm, you'll get my heart. Sometimes it can lead to people being only focused on the mission that Jesus has given us mm -hmm. to go out and reach as many people as possible, right? And losing some of the focus on building community and, and helping people grow. So okay? the, the great, great commission without the great commandment. Right. Without loving God yes. and loving people, right? Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's all mission, all fire, and then they end up not. So when you've got a bunch of pioneers like apostles and evangelists, dude, they're ready to take the next ground. If you don't have some pastor, shepherd, teachers around to actually build what's growing, then you're just blazing trails but not building anything behind you as you go, mm -hmm. right? And that can be a difficult thing sometimes too. So that's mm -hmm. another both-and approach. Please don't hear me say here, guys, either or here. It's not. We've got to have both these things happening side by side in order to really see the mission accomplished. So Yeah, if we could yeah. dig a little on that real quick, and then we'll come to some of these questions because it, it touches on this particular question. I think sometimes we, we see that, you know, when we start to hear, um, we start to hear about the way that decentralized multiplication is happening or uh, a, a lower control type of multiplication where there's still a centralization surrounding teaching, tra training, and equipping. Um, when we start to hear that, we get a little bit nervous in North America because we do feel like there are some real benefits to control or there are some things that you're necessarily going to lose when you give up control. You know, we talk about that. Well, aren't you going to lose control yeah. uh, when that happens? So um, I think that is a misconception, one that, that many of us have, one that I had at one point in time. Uh, but but there, are, there, are, there are a lot of things that you do in India to make sure that DNA is being passed on generationally. Yeah. So could you give us just a few examples of that? Because again, it's decentralized in many ways, but there is still the passing of DNA. It's not yeah. high control, but yeah. there's still the conveyance yeah. from one generation to the next generation yeah. That, yeah. that leads yeah. to that health. Yeah. Let me say one thing about control real quick. Every time, not every time, almost every time I'm tempted to control for me, I'm talking about me, guys. You'll have to look in the mirror and talk. Like I don't know. For me, every time, every time I'm tempted to control, it's birthed out of pride. Every time for me, because I think I can do it better. They need to listen to me. I've got the golden tongue that can preach the best message, so they need to come and listen to me, not this guy that doesn't know how to preach, right, or whatever. So a lot of times when I'm wanting control from me personally, it's born out of pride and arrogance. And so I've had to I've had to confess that and continue to repent of that and make sure that it's it's something that I'm continuing to empower people even if they can't some of them won't do it as good as you man that's okay right they won't some of you have some tremendous gifts and they may not do it as good as you and and that's all right okay so for us as we're releasing control um, we've got two main principles that we use pretty frequently in order to help DNA continue to get passed down okay um, we've got a lot but we don't have time to go through all of them let's hit two main ones. Mm -hmm. The first one is we have a two-group principle at the very beginning. So let's say let's say there's a group of us, I don't know, 10 or 15 of us here that are in a house church together, okay? And let's say, what's your name? Steve. Steve. Let's say Steve, because uh, the goal in the house church is actually to equip and train every single one of these guys and gals on how to share their faith, make disciples, and the ability to start a simple church in their home. Not everybody will. That's okay. 
We're seeing probably about 10 to 20% of people globally after they're training equipped to mm -hmm. actually go do this, okay? So your fear of every person in your church going to plant a new church is irrelevant, okay? Don't worry about it. It's not going to happen, okay? Um, so let's say Steve has some friends. Steve, right? Yep. Okay, good. I want to make sure I didn't just screw up the name 30 <laughs> seconds after he gave it to me. Um, let's say Steve goes and reaches his friends, and he reaches five or six friends with the gospel, and you're beginning to disciple them, and you form them into a group together, and you're becoming kind of a simple church in your home, okay? So in India, what we do is we'd say, Steve, we want you to keep coming back here too, and this is where you're going to get trained and equipped and discipled. We'll coach you, and you're going to be doing the training and equipping and discipling there, okay? So we're still pulling into him. We're not releasing him right away. That helps with the depth and the breadth that I was talking about, okay? So we're still coaching and mentoring and guiding him, and he's doing that, okay? And then that would be the same of you if you go out. It would be the same with you if you go out. It's, it's the same thing, two-group principle, okay? Because in these churches, they don't have some big uh, Sunday service to go to, so they can easily do two groups a week because most people in America do that anyway. They go to a Sunday morning and then maybe a small group on a Thursday night or something. So two groups isn't that big of a commitment, okay? So they're doing that and that. Now let's say Steve just becomes a crazy multiplier, and he's not only started one now, he started like three or four, and then they're, they're, his guys and gals are out starting theirs. And we've started to see like a couple generations of growth here, which is amazing. That's what we're after. Mm -hmm. That's what we're casting vision for. So at that point, Steve may not have time to do all that and this, all that, right? So then we invite him into our second level of mentoring and coaching that we call a 139. It's just a pretty way to talk about 2 Timothy 2.2, okay? One leader is pouring into three, and each of those three have their three, which is where the nine comes from, okay? It's super simple. What it is, it's a, it's a monthly gathering with multipliers, and only multipliers are invited, okay? It's a high bar, all right? Because when they're in a two-group principle, they don't need this group. They're getting that here. But then when he's doing that so well and doesn't have time to do this anymore, he needs something else to help deepen him and coach him more. So we have him in this group now with like three or four other guys, maybe five, Again, it doesn't have to be 3-9. It could be 4-12 or 5-17. It doesn't matter, okay? It's just hard to say 1-5-17, okay? Uh, well, it's not. It's pretty easy. But um, so then Steve's doing that, and in that group, we're looking at the health of the multiplication. We're asking questions about that. We're talking about generations down the line. We're talking about your leaders. We're talking about your family. We're studying the Bible together. We're asking each other tough questions. We're strategizing. We're helping one another, all of that. And so this two-group principle and then these leadership meetings called 139s all the way down the line, man, it's helping deepen the, the, the strength and maturity of our disciples, and it's also helping continue to press in the DNA at every level, at every stage of equipping and releasing disciples. Okay? Mm -hmm. The third thing is, is that we are every group, every house church, every whatever you want to call them, they're all obedience-based. Okay? And what we mean by that is, at the end of every single group when we're meeting, including 139s, we're all going around the room and saying, this is what I heard the Holy Spirit say to me in this time that I need to do right now. This is what King Jesus is telling me that I need to do. So it's not a commitment you're making to me if I'm leading it. It's not a commitment you're making to each other. It's a commitment you're making to Jesus as your King and Lord. This is what I've heard you say, Lord, and this is what I'm going to do in, in, in response. So it is an action, okay? So that action is committed. We're also committing every single meeting. Who am I going to share the gospel with this week? Okay. So evangelism DNA is in every believer because it's literally, we ask about it every week. And then who am I going to disciple? So the, the whole, like, who's a Christian that I'm continuing to pour into this week as well? So we're immediately obeying God's word. 
we're sharing the gospel consistently and we are discipling consistently. And so as that DNA is getting all the way down, man, man, we've got we've got people that that's all they know is church, right? They've never even some of them have never even heard of Jesus before. This is church for them. This is what it means to be a follower of Jesus to them. There's no other expectation. This is all they've ever known. And so this is what they're doing. And and the DNA man is is just continuing to pass on because of that coaching, mentoring, discussion, pushing back and forth, strategizing together, praying together, all those things. And so it's really leading yeah. to some, some cool stuff. Yeah, so a lot of the fear, if we let go of control, is, is what will happen if we're not controlling what, what the outcome is, right? And so maybe we're going to end up with things that are unhealthy. And I just want to ask you to think and just be real honest with yourself. What, what is more likely to lead to generational health? The type of model we're often embracing or what Joss has just presented, right? And so our fear of losing control because of a move toward decentralization yeah. actually yeah. may be, may be yeah. somewhat unfounded or our yeah. fear of what could happen. In fact, we may yeah. actually lead to the thing happening that we didn't want to happen. That's good. Uh, because we're missing out on what actually brings real yeah. generational health in that. Okay. Here's a question yeah, real yeah, quick. Yeah. Here's a question you want to ask yourself. Do you want control? Or do you want influence? Mm. <laughs> okay? Man, when you're releasing and equipping disciples and multiplying them like crazy, your influence and impacts is going to be multiplied to levels you could never imagine. Okay? And so right now, I'm sitting here with you, and I know today, okay, there are hundreds of churches being planted today mm. in India. While I'm standing here with you talking about movements of multiplication, that is impact and influence that happened because of just releasing and equipping and empowering and decentralizing. Do you understand what I'm saying? I can't control it. It's out of my hands. I can't control it at all. As a matter of even if I wanted to now, it's gone, man. <laughs> like there's there's no rain in that baby back in. Talk about hurting cats. Good grief. Like you're not uh, there's no control anymore. Like once you make that decision, it's done. It's out of your hands. But the influence and impacts that our leaders are having is exponentially more than I could have ever asked or imagined, right? Mm -hmm. Yes, Steve. I'm just curious of your disciple you were embarrassed by or didn't think would make it when you said he went out in two weeks and planted however many churches. Can, can you tell some of that, like what and why did he, what did he do those two weeks? Yeah, that's great. So he literally every single day went to surrounding villages from our town, okay? Some of them he had acquaintances in or friends in. Some of them he didn't. He, he didn't even know. But some of them he had friends and acquaintances in. He literally, we were teaching him very simple tools. Mm -hmm. Like how do you go in, uh, share your story or testimony, and then share a very simple gospel presentation with them. Okay. And so we say all the time, your story, your testimony, your story opens hearts. God's story changes hearts. Okay. Your story opens hearts. God's story changes hearts. So he was going in, sharing his story about how, and because God had, had completely transformed this guy's life. So he's sharing his story and then sharing a very simple God story, Jesus' story, about how what Jesus could do for them, right? And then these people were responding. And so in one village, he led, you know, six or seven people to Jesus. Um, and then in another one, it was five. And another one, it was ten, right? So he was leading these people to Jesus and then just saying, hey, do you guys want to continue to meet and study the Bible together, Right. So then we gave him a simple tool on how to study the Bible in a small group like that. In order, it's a discovery Bible study in order to continue to be obedient followers of Jesus. And so then he's able to lead that on his own 
And he couldn't even read or write, so he was doing oral, like he was learning Bible stories from us in our meeting when we were training, and then going and doing those Bible stories with these other villagers who many of them couldn't read or write either. And so they were passing Bible stories back and forth. And then some of the villages, there were people who could read. And so he started doing, he started doing like Bible studies with people who could read. Yeah, David, you have something to add there? Uh, just, yeah, a lot to add, but I won't do it right now. <laughs> um, no, question for you. Is this happening at all in North America? I know it's easy to think about India. We hear a lot about what God's doing in India. Is this happening in North America? And are there simple tools or there are ways in which we could get training? potentially to learn how to do some of the same type of things you're doing. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you're doing it, David, so that's a good question. David Kaufman's doing it in uh, Nashville, Tennessee. Um, yes, it's happening all over North America. So we have people all over. I mean, Paul and his church are going after this. We've got several other churches in Renew that are going after this. Um, we've got people literally all over the country in North America that are starting to see disciples make disciples make disciples. I've got one buddy man in Denver, Colorado. Mm-hmm. Bro, he started eight, not him, but their, their church started 800 simple churches in the last two years in Denver, Colorado. And they're seeing third generation, fourth generation. They're, it's crazy. It's, it's amazing. Okay. When we talk so, about yes. multiplication, I think when we had talked to him previously, it was about 100 yes. in one year. And then the next year, yes. moved to 800. It just, it just so boomed. That's yes. exponential growth. Yeah. And there's yeah. organizations like, uh, you know, there's, there's things like Zume that Curtis mm-hmm. did. That's a great training resource. Uh, I'm a part of an organization called E3 Partners that offers tons of training like this. Uh, and that's all these things are free. Zoom is free. E3's training resources are free. There's a network called No Place Left that mm-hmm. we're a part of that has tons of free training resources. So, yeah, I mean, there's a ton of resources like that. We even have teams, guys, all over North America that would come for free to your church to train your people. Like, giving the kingdom away, man, like all mm-hmm. of them. And so, yeah, there's a ton of stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Seeing another hand. I've seen. I see that hand. I see that. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Go ahead, and then we'll come back around. A lot of the churches, they do disciple, you know, they want to make disciples. So they make the disciples, and then, just like you were talking about, um, reproducing yourself. And is that really something that we should be reproducing, making sure that you're growing? So I know you talked about doing those scaffolds. What would you suggest to do that for churches? Because a lot of times they are great about, hey, be a disciple. Yeah. But then how can you make, how can you uh, make sure that they're, that's so good. let me repeat, yeah. the que- repeat the question if you can for the... Yeah, yeah go ahead. Do it? Okay, so the question is about uh, in churches as we're becoming disciples who make disciples, what kind of scaffolding should we put in place right now? What kind of leadership training, equipping structures should we put in yeah. place right so now that doing so that we're passing on DNA yeah. as we go? Is that correct? Okay, good. Yeah, that's a great question. Thank you, Elisa. Uh, so uh, step. Here, let me back up a second for once, like one very important first step, Okay you must define what you mean when you say disciple. Mm-hmm. You need to define that. Because honestly, I've heard guys that use these words, I want to make disciples, but what they mean by that is yeah. some deep theologian that knows all the Bible. You know what I'm saying? Like it's all knowledge-based. That's how they're going to grow to be a disciple is what all the stuff they know. Okay. When Jesus said disciple, because Listen, I've heard a lot of scholars be like, what disciple meant was learner. So we've got to learn. And it's like, well, hold on a second here. What Jesus meant by disciple, yeah, they were learning, but they were learning to do what Jesus did. Okay, It wasn't that they were just learning his knowledge. Right. They were following him to see what he was doing so they could do the same thing. Right? He's healing, and then what are the disciples doing two years later? They're healing. 
He's preaching. What are the disciples doing in the streets of Jerusalem? They're preaching, right? They're, he's casting out demons. What are the disciples doing? They're casting out demons, right? Like, so what, what he meant was they're learning, not knowledge. That's not what Jesus meant at all. Yeah, they know some stuff, but they were learning to do what he did, right? And so a disciple is somebody who is going to be doing what a disciple does. And what does a disciple do, right? I mean, a disciple, they're loving like Jesus, talking like Jesus. The whole idea of a disciple is to be as much like Jesus as possible, right? And so how did he love? How did he talk? How did he preach? How did he evangelize? How did he love people? How did he, how did he show compassion to people? We want our people looking as much like Jesus as possible, not just in their knowledge, right? I heard a guy say to me once, Josh, the distance between uh, heaven and hell is 18 inches. It's the distance between your head and your heart, Okay. And so we don't want just stuff up here, man. We want it to be so ingrained in their system, their DNA, mm -hmm. that they're living this out every day. So that's, that's, that is not answering your question, but we need to define that, okay? Now, to answer her question, we've got to have, okay, like we've got to have simple training available for every one of the people in our church to teach them how to live like this. What are simple ways to tell their story? What are simple ways to share their faith? And then when somebody says yes, how do you make a simple disciple? How do you multiply that? How do you start a simple church or a group? You don't have to call them churches, guys. Like, don't get weird. It's call it wherever you want, okay? But how do you start simple, small things <laughs> that will multiply, okay? Um, and, and what does that look like? And make sure that the tools are simple that anyone can use. I tell our guys all the time, listen, if you want to give me a tool, great. If you got a good idea for a tool, great. But if my 10-year-old son can't do it, it's too complicated, Okay. So my 10-year-old son can't do it, don't do it. So that's one scaffolding piece, Elisa. Another one is small communities that are keeping each other accountable, like I mentioned. So every single week, they're setting goals with one another. This is what I'm going to do to be a disciple this week. This is how I'm going to live this out. And then next week, your group is holding you accountable mm -hmm. to the decision you made to God, not to them, to God, because he's king and he's Lord. So we're making that decision to him, right? We're, we're making that commitment to him. And those small groups of community where you're holding each other accountable, that is the best scaffolding that you can have in order to multiply disciples. They're living it out together. They're holding one another accountable. They're studying the word together. And then they're multiplying obedience that way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, that's good. Saw another hand back here. Yes. Yeah. Would, you, would you speak to the person who says, well, what about the need for deep Bible study? Because I feel like that's the resistance I hear from my pastor friends. They build my own churches. If you're going to do discovery Bible study, if you're going to do disciple making, we need to teach people more first. So will you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, good question. Let me rephrase, or let me just say it again real quick for the recording. Again, yeah, there is, there is this kind of objection, I think, uh, in American Christianity to what looks like the very surface level simplicity of DBS and that we're not going to do deep Bible study if this is yeah. what we're doing. So could you speak yeah, to yeah. that? So. Let's, let's be real honest for a second. Okay. The majority of people, in the, I'm not talking about everybody. I'm not, please, please don't misquote me later. Okay. The majority of people in the American church, and I'm going to say something extreme here because I'm trying to make an extreme point. Okay. Don't hold me to this every day of my life. Okay. But I'm going to make an extreme statement. Okay. The majority of people in the American church already know enough of the Bible that if they never picked it up a day in their life again and only obeyed what they know, they would shake the nation of America. Mm. 
Okay. The problem is not that we don't know enough. The problem is we don't live it enough. Okay. This book was not meant to be read and studied in depth alone. Yes, it was. It's not the purpose of this book. The purpose of this book is to know God's heart, God's actions, God's desire, and then for us to live that out in our lives. Right. So the problem isn't that we don't know enough. As a matter of fact, the problem is we may know too much and we are under obedience and over educated. We're overeducated and under obedient. And so mm-hmm. now listen, a brand new believer that's never picked up the book in his life, I'm not talking about people like that. Okay, please hear me. But what's going to be best for that new believer that's never picked it up a day in his life is to read something and immediately obey it. Not to study it in depth, not to beat a dead horse. Okay, that is not the desire. The desire is what's the next step you need to take in your life? Let's study that in the word and then let's show you how to live that out. What's the next step? Let's study it in the word. Okay, it's it's Listen, the Bible is the curriculum, guys. I'm not saying we don't need to study this book. The Bible is the curriculum. But the point is to live this out every day of our lives so that it transforms every fiber of our being and then make more disciples that do the same, okay? Mm-hmm. So every person that I've met, I can, I've never met a person in America where I think after meeting them, you know what, they just really need to get deeper in the Bible. That's, that's, not, what I'm, that's not the an initial reaction I have. The initial reaction is, there's some areas of life that they need to start mm-hmm. living this stuff out. They need to start walking this out a little bit. They need to start practicing this stuff. They need to put it into play, right, and see what happens. And so that's that's what I would speak to that about, brother. Again, I'm not against eat Bible studies. We do all sorts of stuff. I've got a commentary mm-hmm. in my office that I never pick up. It's there, though. I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, but, but anyway, we've, I'm not against that, brother. But if it's not leading to action and impacts, then we're, then we're wasting the word that God has spoken to us. Okay, here, let me, let me give this. Dude, this, this shook my life, guys, okay? Man, I'm, you're getting me fired up a little bit, okay? Um, to, to quote Curtis, this is me excited. Um, okay, and so, uh, <laughs> and so, uh, <laughs> um, listen, so Matthew 7, wise man and foolish man, okay? Dude, I've heard like hundreds of sermons across my life about that. And almost all of them go like this, and I've even preached a message like this, okay? So I'm not, I'm not digging anybody. I've preached this message to you. It goes like this, okay? If you build your life on anything other than Jesus, okay, it's going to come crashing down. Sex, money, power, fame, applause of people, whatever it is, you build your life on that, it's sand, and when the storms of life come, it's going to come crashing down. You build your life on Jesus, he's the rock, and everything will stay strong, okay? Amen. That is such a true sermon. It was nothing of what Jesus preached that day. It's not what Jesus meant. It wasn't his point. His point was this, and listen to me closely. There is only one difference in Jesus' parable between the wise man and the foolish man. And this is what I would say to every person asking this question, brother. Okay? And thank you, Holy Spirit, for giving me this passage. Okay? Um, The only difference. He says, the wise man was the man who heard my words and immediately put them into practice. That's the wise man. The foolish man was what? Who heard the words and did nothing. So unintentionally, guys, again, unintentionally, I'm not, I'm not talking about people's motives here. I'm not talking about why they do what they do. Unintentionally, we have built cultures that create foolish builders every week of our churches, okay? In our churches. Because we are creating environments where all they do is listen and have no place to live it out. 
So we are encouraging almost, unintentionally, encouraging foolish builders. They're hearing the word and have no place to walk it out. And Jesus says that's foolish, that you're building your life on sand. It's not just about hearing this or knowing it or studying it. It's about doing it and immediately putting it into practice, right? And so that's what this whole discipleship piece is about. It's not about giving up Bible study. It's about listening, hearing it, reading it, but then immediately stepping out. So the foolish man, according to Jesus is the guy who sits in a pew every single week faithfully listening to sermons and never does anything with what he hears. Or it's the pastor that studies the Bible 20 hours a week for a message and never personally lives it out. Or the woman who listens to a podcast every day on her way to work that's some sermon of Craig Rochelle or Francis Chan or David Platt or somebody and then never does what they say. Okay, This is the foolish men and women that Jesus talks about. Yes, if we build our life on sex, money, or power, of course it's foolish. Mm. That was not Jesus' point at all. Mm. It was about obedience. It was about living this out. That was his only point that day. And so what are we doing to study it and then live it out? That was some great stuff from Josh and Paul. I hope that you were blown away by that episode like I was. One of the first things that he said that stuck out to me was, he said, am I a disciple that's even worth replacing? My gosh, what a great question to be asking ourselves as we're making disciples. Are we actually living up to this stuff? Are we actually applying this scripture to our lives? Are we actually being obedient to the whisper of the Holy Spirit in our minds, telling us to not do this and to start doing that? That's a great question to be asking as we're learning how to disciple people. And I loved how at the end he said, in North America, we are overeducated, but under obedient. Man, I've, I've been a Christian for a long time since I was a little kid. And my faith really didn't start growing until six years ago when I was 34, when I actually started obeying what God was saying in his scripture. Even before I understood it, I was like, God, I'm gonna give you the benefit of the doubt here. Even though your word is not making sense to me, I'm gonna try to apply it to my life and have faith in you as I move forward. And that's when it all started making sense to me. It's amazing how some of us, maybe that's you, you've gone so many years of just filling your head with knowledge, but you've never started living it out. I encourage you today to change that. Break that cycle in your family and start being obedient to Jesus and his lordship through scripture and watch how it changes everything about your life. All right, y'all, up next, we got one more episode from Renew.org, so stay tuned for that. Hit the subscribe button if you haven't already, and I just want to say I really appreciate y'all being a listener of the Disciple Makers Podcast. We'll see you.